Well, hello again. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. And it's great to have you with us again on Two Ways News. For our topic today, Philip, I wanted to talk a little bit about reading and interpretation. And I'll tell you what I mean. We've got a podcast called Two Ways News. We're well known for two ways to live. In fact, you'd think that we thought there was an actual right way to understand things. There were only two ways to live. And when people ask us, well, how can you be so sure that that's the gospel and that there are only two ways to live? We might say, well, because we read that in the Bible. We get that gospel from the Bible. And the immediate comeback, though, of course, is, well, surely that's just your interpretation. Surely there's lots of ways to interpret the Bible. How can you be so sure that you've figured out what this gospel really is in such a supposedly arrogant kind of fashion? It's not arrogance. It's humility. Well, that's really what I want to talk about today. Why is that humility? And how can we interpret the Bible, if I can put it that way, in a way that we can be sure in any sense that we actually know what it means? Well, it's got to do with the shifting meaning of the word interpretation to some extent. That is, the word interpret used to mean to understand, to explain what the text actually means. But the word interpretation has come, especially through the arts of musics and plays and things like that, and also through postmodern kind of deconstruction. The word interpret is not what the author meant or the text means, but what I, the reader, mean in the text, that I determine the text's meaning from my own viewpoint. So to interpret it gives me freedom to present it in a way that expresses my thinking rather than expresses the author's thinking or what the text can mean. Now, some people, of course, saying the text has no meaning um, and that there is no authorial intent. The author's intention is beyond my knowledge. And so all reading is interpretation. But I'm afraid that's a nonsense. When the word is called out fire, then people know what you mean. You also know that it's not a terribly coherent point because they will express that viewpoint, the viewpoint that there is no such (laughs) thing as meaning, through words and sentences, and they'll write enormously long books explaining to you why it's not possible to find any meaning in books. Yes, they want you to understand their meaning in their books rather than make it up. I mean, Although sometimes the way those books are written, I, I wonder if they actually do want you to understand <laughs> yeah. their meaning, such as um, the opacity of the, the writing at certain points. But this is a modern problem, isn't it? The idea that we're not sure that texts can mean something and that everyone just has their own interpretation of it. And we bring that kind of narrative with us to the Bible and think, well, who knows? It's yes. just it's, it's open slather, whatever you make of it. But if the reader is the sovereign controller of the text. That is arrogance. But if the reader is desperate to find out what the author meant in the text or by the text, that's humility. Ah, that's what you were meaning earlier. That's what I mean, that you, you, you're actually listening properly to the speaker, listening properly to the text and the author, because you're not interested in your own views, you're interested in finding out what their view is. That great verse in Isaiah that talks about the one whom God esteems, the one who trembles at at his word, word. yes. That text also says, and is humble and lowly of spirit, Mm. and who trembles at his word, Mm. yes. And in many ways I think that's a description of what reading really is, in the way that you're just describing it. All reading is a trembling, is a, 
is a humbly coming to the text in front of you to see what the the text is saying to you, not what I'm bringing to the text or imposing on the text. Aware, of course, that I come to the text with my own baggage and my own existing understandings and my own view of the world. But me, who I am, coming to this text, what does this text have to say to me? So it seems to me all reading, all good reading is humble in that sense. In that sense, it should be. All good reading is, yes, absolutely. But when you're reading God's Word, it's even more that we need the humility because I'm reading God's Word in order to do what God says yes, and in order to appreciate the goodness of what God has said. And so if I come to God's Word still wanting to excuse myself, uh, reject what God has said, twist what God... There is the arrogance that means I will never actually read the Bible properly. And the Bible recognises that you can think of 2 Peter, where it talks about the unstable who twist the word to their own destruction. It's always possible to twist the words of God, but you do so to your own destruction. If you've got the Spirit of God within you, you'll be reading God's word in order to find out what God wants of you and what he is saying to you and promising to you. You're desperate to hear God's voice not wanting to change it, modify it, twist it, or adapt it to yourself. So interpretation in that sense, we're saying, really is just reading, is what the old-fashioned word was for it. Yes. What is this text saying? Yes. What does it mean to read well? Well, it's to understand what the author is saying. So if I hear you right, you're saying that it's possible to come to a set of words on a page and to expect them to have a meaning and to read that meaning or interpret that meaning. How do we go about doing that? Well, words do and do not have meanings depending on their context. And so a single word, stump, might have seven or eight different meanings that are common in the community of English speakers. But the word's meaning will actually be found in the sentence in which it occurs and the paragraph in which it occurs and the book in which it occurs. A, A book on cricket will give you a different meaning for the word stump than the book on tree chopping. The two things are connected. Presumably, the original cricket stumps came because someone had chopped a tree down. There's a connection, but what you're meaning by the word stump will come from its context. And in particular, the context of its sentence. I mean, that's yes. the, there's a context, a dictionary context, the context of what does this word convey or connote or mean in the linguistic community in which it is used. Linguistic community is a nice way of saying social. Hmm. A group of people who use this language. Yes. So what a dictionary does is it, it just describes, they don't define anything, dictionaries, they describe how the word is used in the English-speaking world. The Australian dictionary will be slightly different to the English and slightly different to the American dictionary because they're just describing how Australians, Americans, English people use words. But there are other societies than the total one. So our family may use particular words with particular references and meanings that those outside the family don't have. Our our church may use words. I mean... There are words like atonement and redemption, which Christians have a very special meaning for, which I notice that every now and then there's Hollywood movies that use the word atonement, or crosswords. I I do crosswords from time to time, and their meaning of the word atonement is not the Christian meaning of the word atonement. Or, You know, the Shawshank redemption does not have any actual Christian redemption in it. 
but that's the word is used in a, a different society differently. So words have meanings within the social network that they're being spoken. So words have meaning in particular contexts, and that means if we're reading the Bible, for example, we want to know what the words they were using meant then, and you'd find that out from dictionaries that describe what those words meant at that particular time in history, in the Greco-Roman world and so on, or in ancient Israel. But words also really come to say something only really in a sentence. It's only by forming sentences and paragraphs that we say things with words. Yes, because the basic unit of meaning is the sentence rather than the word itself. And so the word doesn't have a meaning apart from its social context or apart from its sentence in which it occurs. And so as we read the Bible, we need to understand the meaning of the words that are used if we're reading in the original language or the meaning of the English words that we're using to translate those words. But we have to keep reading the sentences and the paragraphs in which they occur to see how those words are being used and what's actually being said. And in the Bible, that's the context is also bigger than that, though, too, isn't it? Because the Bible is not just sentences and paragraphs. It's chapters and books. Yes, that's and right. And testaments. And different authors could use the words with subtly different meanings or could be, as in English, so in Greek and Hebrew, can be using the one word to mean different things in different contexts. And so if I remember correctly, there's a commentary by F.F. F. Bruce on the Epistle to the Romans, in which he gives six different meanings of the word law that occur just inside Romans. And you, you need to be weighing up each time, well, which, which shade, which connotation of the word law is being met in this sentence as opposed to that? Or... And two authors, or even the same author in different places, can use a word with the same basic meaning, but to refer to different things. Yes. So, for example, mm -hmm. the word congregation in Acts 19, ecclesia, mm -hmm. means the same thing as the word congregation at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, where it says the congregate to the congregation of God in Corinth. It means assembly, congregation, mm -hmm. group of people. Uh, the word's meaning hasn't changed. What it's referring to has changed. Because in Acts 19, it's referring to a crowd. A non-Christian riotous yes. mob. Yeah, in okay. fact, within that... One of them is the riotous mob, but a few minutes later he says we've got to come to the regular assembly, which is something not a riotous mob. So there are two congregations. Yes. So there are two congregations in even within Acts 19, and so working out what the author is saying is not just a matter of what the word congregation or ecclesia means, but how he's employing it in a sentence. Yes. Now this seems really incredibly something basic to say. Read the sentence and see what the sentence means. But we don't always do it. Well, it seems basic to say, but in our discussion, we can start to make it sound like it's something incredibly complicated to do. But it's what children do. If you can speak a language, it's what you're doing all the time. It's part of, it's something we learn as little children when our parents teach us to speak. Because humans are incredibly clever, created by God in his image to use language like no other animal, it is very complicated. <laughs> but because we are all created to be able to do it, it is really very simple to do. So you can make this a, a, a kind of, turn this molehill into a mountain. So oh, it's beyond any possibility of understanding. But at the same time, you go home and talk to your children and they understand exactly what you're saying. It's not really... Well, you write a letter to your mother and she understands exactly what you've said to yes. her in the letter. Yeah, you want more money. Yes, it's quite <laughs> steep. <laughs> so when we come to the Bible, we have the 
Context, you say reading is a matter of context, the social and linguistic context of the words, the sentence and paragraph context of what's being said through those words and with those words. But what about the broader context we find in the Bible? Because the Bible is a whole book. It's a, a book of 66 books with a great grand sweep of it. How does that inform the way we read? Yeah, I think that's really important. I think in general, those other social and immediate contexts are there. But the Bible has a broader context, which we do need to understand we do it through a theological abstraction so we can talk about the trinity the bible doesn't talk about the trinity but yet from the bible we are able to come to a view of god being three persons in one which then affects how we read all of the bible but we also have another abstraction that's that's not a theological abstraction but it's just the big storyline, the big narrative line of what the Bible is saying, of how, how the different books of the Bible are recounting events more than a thousand years and how one book looks forward to another thing happening, which is then described in another book. And so any part of the Bible has the broader context, both theologically and historical, prophetically, biblically. We started this conversation by talking about the gospel and the gospel as something that we read and understand through the words and sentences of the Bible. Let's use it as a case study. Okay. How do we understand gospel in the Bible as a word, as a concept, as something that the Bible refers to and talks about? Well, I think the first thing we're going to do is go for what does the word gospel mean? What is a gospel? Not what is the gospel, but what is a gospel? And the word itself has a meaning outside of the New Testament as well as in the New Testament. And so in the social context of you know, a dictionary uh, of Greco-Roman usages of the word gospel, it, it means a declaration. It's an announcement. It's an announcement of something important. It's not just a little announcement. It's a, it's a big announcement, an announcement often of an event, but it's an announcement of something which is so important that it's going to affect the future. It's going to change the future, affect the future. Sometimes even in the activity of telling the announcement, making the announcement, it changes the future. And so declaring the king is dead, well, that changes the future. Or a new king has been appointed, that changes. I mean, a gospel recently in Australian and world history, well, I think is, Kabul has fallen to the Taliban. That's a gospel. It's a big piece of news. It says all kinds of things about Western forces withdrawing and questioning the power of the West to control places like Afghanistan. It tells you a lot about the future of Afghanistan or indicates what's going to happen. It tells you about the power of the Taliban and warns you of the difficulties of the women of Afghanistan are now going to experience. It's it's a very big piece of news which was announced through the media all around the world. That was a gospel. It's sometimes good news. It's good news for the Taliban, but at the same time, it's really bad news for all kinds of other people. Whether it's good or bad is not the issue. Its importance and its impact is what's, what's the issue of what a gospel is. So if that's what a gospel is... What sort of gospel, with what content, with what effect on the future is the New Testament gospel, the gospel that we read 
in the Gospels and in the New Testament? Well, it's about two things about Jesus, really. It's all about Jesus. It's the Gospel of Jesus. It's about who he is and what he's done. It's not just enough to say the Gospel is Jesus. What about Jesus? Who who is he? What has he done? And so the Gospel will be about Jesus as Lord and Saviour or something like that. It will engage us at the point of his death and resurrection because that's what he's come to do. But it's more than just his death and resurrection. It's got to do with because of his death and resurrection, he is now Lord and Saviour. He is now Lord and King. He is now appointed as the right hand of God. He's the judge of the living and the dead. And so your gospel statement will have something. It's a sentence rather than just a, a word. It's the sentence about Jesus having died and risen again is now appointed as Lord and Saviour of mankind. And we see it in our Bibles when we go through and look at how the apostles preach the gospel. They always mention Jesus. They always mention his resurrection. They always are talking about him as the Lord and judge of the universe and calling upon people to respond by repentance and faith. The kind of response you're looking for tells you about the content of the gospel. And so putting your trust in Jesus and turning back to God is the response you're looking for when you declare Jesus has risen from the dead. Well, if we come back to two ways to live, you've just really described boxes four and five of two ways to live. Jesus dying for sins, Jesus rising from the dead to be the ruler and judge of the world, to offer forgiveness of sins and new life. To come again in glory as judge, that's all there. Um, So what's boxes one to three about? If boxes four to five are really what the apostles went around proclaiming, uh, why do we bother with those other three boxes, let alone box six, which we'll come to? Well, yes, box, box one, two and three about creation, sin and judgment. We have estimated people need as a context in order to understand boxes four and five. So when Paul is preaching to non-Jews, he always refers to the creation. In Acts 14 or Acts 17, he refers to the creation. Don't need to give that context to the Jews because they already know the creator. Well, when we're preaching the gospel today in the Australian context, we certainly need to include the creator. We also need to include sin because, again, people do not understand sin or the wrath of God and the justice, because people don't understand that. If you don't have a concept of the Creator, you don't really have a concept of sin. If you don't have a concept of sin, you don't really have a concept of judgment. If you don't have those three things, Jesus' death on the cross doesn't actually make sense to you. So boxes one to three are the presenting of the context in order to understand the gospel, which you're quite right, are boxes four and five. And then box six is the response to that gospel? It's the response to the gospel, yes. The right and appropriate response. It's like the follow-through on a cricket shot. It's absolutely critical to make a good shot in the golf golf swing. The follow-through is a key part of the shot in any of those games, tennis, cricket, golf. But it's not the shot. (laughs) It's implied in the shot. It's the necessary implication of the shot. You can, in a sense, distinguish what the shot itself is the moment that the impact with the with the ball takes place in that sense you can you can distinguish the gospel announcement from its response 
but you can't separate it from its response. No. If I say to you, there's a bomb under this building that's going off in 10 minutes and let's sit and have a long lunch together, that's just saying the message you've just said is wrong. It's not true. Or we're total masochists and want to die. You know, I mean, that's, there's certain messages which have inbuilt implication of response. And the response, well, you can say that's part of the gospel. I'd prefer to say that's the response to the gospel. The call to respond, the declaration of Jesus as king and his call on the world to repent and acknowledge him as king is part, I think, of the announcement, I would say. Um, That's what Paul does in Acts 17. It says God now calls on everyone to repent because of this Jesus. So the, the response or the necessity of the response of a call to respond is um, is bound up with and included in the proclamation. Same in Luke 24, where Jesus says that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name. It's almost like the nature of the re- the call to the response and the nature of what it will bring is part of the proclamation. Yes, and it's part of the context in a sense. It yeah. makes meaning and sense of what it is that you're trying to say. I do understand people's impulse, though, not not to bind our response, as it were, into the gospel, as if our response is part of the gospel. And I, I get the, imp- the the reason that people sometimes get nervous about that. Well, you get nervous because the gospel is about grace. Yes. It's about what God has done for us. It's not about what we do for God. Exactly. And so to make that subtle distinction is a helpful way of keeping clear that the gospel is about God's work in Christ Jesus rather than any attempt to yet again bring my response as essential for the work of my salvation. Now we've been talking about the gospel in a sense the theological context of the gospel understanding the New Testament gospel you need to understand creation and sin and judgment in a sense that's almost like a summary of the Old Testament too isn't it like the that context comes to us from what God has revealed in the Old Testament about creation, about the nature of humanity, about his sin, his judgment and his character. It's almost like the Old Testament is the story so far and along comes Jesus as the climax of the story. But it's also deeper and richer than that, isn't it? The Old Testament is a, is a biblical context, uh, a literary and linguistic context to what the gospel is finally proclaimed as yes if you just preach the gospel in its theological terms it almost depersonalizes jesus he is the product that god has used to bring about something whereas when you read matthew mark luke john it's about what jesus did it's about who he is it actually spells out the real man and it doesn't spell out the real man in six pictures in six boxes it tells you where he went and who he spoke to. And and so the gospel is there in the gospels. In fact, the theological explanation has been derived from the gospels, but it is expressed in a different categories of thought altogether. It's written as history. It's something that God did in time and history. Yes. It's not a set of ideas or principles. Or Yes, that's right. And in that sense, it's embedded in God's history with his people. And so it only really makes sense as history with the prehistory, with the history of Israel, with all that God's done through his people and all the concepts and categories he set up uh, through that history to foreshadow what was going going to happen when Jesus came. Yes, that's why I want to say the broader context is so important in Bible reading because the gospel comes not just suddenly out of the blue from nowhere. God prepares for it over a thousand years for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
to give us the context to understand what is happening when Jesus comes. And so without that broader context, I I suspect we wouldn't have understood what Jesus was doing. I mean, that's why God has given to us. And you'll notice, say, say for example, 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about the gospel delivered first of all, Jesus Christ died for our sins and Jesus Christ rose again. But each time, he says, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. If you want to understand what it means for Jesus to die for sins, what it means for Jesus to rise on the third day, he's telling you, read your scriptures, by which he means the Old Testament. And so there's this emphasis on God has given us the context by which to understand, can I say by which to control the meaning of the events that are happening here, that is, the scriptures. So Mark's gospel starts off, you know, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God, then he starts quoting the prophets. I mean, there's a funny one I always think in 2 Timothy 2.8, where Paul talks about his gospel. And he says, describes the gospel as Jesus risen from the dead, descended from David. And you think, well, I don't see descended from David in two ways to live. You know, what's this descended from David? Well, how could you summarize your gospel as Jesus risen from the dead and descended from David? Well, if you don't understand your Old Testament, you certainly won't understand that gospel. Descended from David is one of the most important elements of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. That he was the Christ, the anointed one, come to sit on David's throne forever. Yes. In the line of David. Yes. The very concept of the Christ is a concept of an anointed one, a king, and the king we're looking for has to be descended from David because that's the promise given by God to David that his son will be the one who is king forever. It's interesting, within the framework of Two Ways to Live, those concepts are kind of implicit and sitting there below the radar in many ways because the whole presentation starts with the rule of God and the rule of humanity over God's world our falling from that, our sin, the judgment that comes upon us, so that when Jesus comes, he comes as the man to rule the world as we were always meant to. And of course, that's the biblical theme of which the messianic rule of David is part, that here is someone to rule God's people again, someone who might finally be the ruler that God's people was looking for, but of course wasn't. And so there's the promise that a ruler will come who will obediently live under God's rule as even David didn't and who will rule the world forever, as David didn't. Genesis 1-11 to sets up the universal character of God's creation and humanity, which from Genesis 12 onwards is selective down into one family, Israel. And that one family, the family of Abraham, is the family by which the whole of humanity is going to ultimately be saved. So... The blessing to Abraham is that through him all the nations will be blessed. We don't see that till Jesus finally comes and has the gospel preached like you suggested in you reminded us of in Luke 24 of going to the nations, repeating it. We don't see it broadening out to the nations again. If you ignore the Abraham to Jesus element, you won't understand what Jesus is doing in reversing the sin and fall of Genesis 1 to 11. And again, that takes us back to the Gospels, doesn't it? To the opening of Luke's Gospel, for example, with its great long genealogical 
tracing of that lineage, yes. that it all goes back to Adam and Abraham and through David and finally to Jesus. And yes. you can only understand who this baby that's being born if you know his family tree. Yeah. The Old Testament does other things for us too, doesn't it? It gives us categories of thought like sin and judgment and it gives us categories of priests and temples and and you know the passover for example and the exodus all of which means that when jesus comes he doesn't come into a blank sheet he comes into a rich tapestry that is already there jesus comes as the, the central pieces of the jigsaw puzzle <laughs> But the jigsaw puzzle makes sense because there's all these other pieces already laid out, set there. It's just you finally come to the the centre one that then makes sense of all the other little pieces. But all the other little pieces make sense of this central one as well because Jesus is our priest. Well, what's a priest? He is our sacrifice. What's a sacrifice? He is our temple. What's a temple? He is our king. What's a king? All those kinds of things are laid out for us in our Old Testaments. So we've looked at what a gospel is, what the word means, its social context, what sort of word it is. We've looked at how the New Testament authors employ that word to describe a particular kind of gospel, a gospel whose meaning they fill out as the crucified king, Jesus risen and, and Lord of all. And we've seen that in the broader context then of the theology of the Bible and the unfolding history of the Bible, you can read and interpret, if I can use that word, that is, see what the biblical text is meaning by what the New Testament gospel is through all those concentrically expanding contexts reaching right back to the very beginning in the Old Testament. And if that sounds complicated, as you're saying, Philip, it's what we do all the time when we read. Yes. We situate words in sentences and paragraphs and we just see almost instinctively, oh, that paragraph falls within a newspaper article I'm reading that has a headline and it's part of this newspaper and it comes after yesterday's newspaper and it refers to things that happened last week. And we, we do this naturally all the time. Sometimes we just don't do it when we come to the Bible. Yes, it's weird. You know, have you read the newspaper today? Yes. Have you interpreted the newspaper today? What? I already <laughs> we, told you I just read it. Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't use the word interpretation on anything other than the Bible. And why is that? Well, because I don't want to read it. That's why. It, uh, I, I don't want to accept what it is fairly plainly saying. I was in church last night and there was a man who uh, was asked to give testimony about how he became a Christian. And it was a fascinating testimony because he actually came to, to, to move from a fairly solid atheist position in life to ponder and think about life and come to the conclusion that there was meaning and purpose. And so he turned to his Bible, which he'd never read. He'd never been to church, this man, ever, other than funerals and weddings. He'd never actually attended a church gathering. And so he read his Bible and COVID came. And so he kept reading his Bible. And uh, he said he started watching people, watching church gatherings as well, but still not coming to church. And... Uh, he turned up at this church on Christmas Day and told the minister that he'd become a Christian about 18 months before, but he'd never been to church because church was online. He said, it's fascinating. I know all these people. They don't know me. I've been a member for a year, but I've never actually attended. But what, what was it? He said, I read the Bible twice. And when I came to Romans, he said, that clinched the deal. I understood what was being said. So here's a man with no kind of pressure, no background. He just read his Bible. 
But the gospel he came to understand is the same gospel that you and I understand because it's it's there in your Bible. And any person who humbly reads what's there will come to the same conclusion. So as we come to reading our Bibles then and everything that we've said today about the nature of that, that reading process is, how would you recommend that people read their Bibles? He interestingly started with the New Testament. And there's a certain logic about it, the logic guy. I haven't got his words, but the logic he was saying, well, this is the pointy end, let me see where it winds up, and then go back and see what lies behind it. That makes sense in some ways. But it doesn't matter how you do it, it's more important that you do it. That's the key. I've got friends who started in Genesis 1. I know one man who said he reached Leviticus and he worked out it was true. I know another man who worked through to Ezekiel before he worked out it was true. But you can read it any way you want. It does, most likely, if I was encouraging someone to start, I would say, start with Jesus, start reading one of the Gospels, because then you'll see where it's all going to. Then you can start going back to see the background that led up to where it was going to. In some way, reading the Old Testament and the New Testament it's as if you can't really read the Old Testament without knowing where it ends up, and you can't really read the New Testament without knowing where it came from. It's, That's it. it's like you're bouncing back and forward between them all the time. Yes, yes. Uh, it's, it's a feedback loop, but it's, it's not a loop. It's a, it's, it's a spiral upwards. I don't know how to express this in the right metaphor, but every time I read my Old Testament, I understand the New Testament better. And every time I read the New Testament, I understand my Old Testament better. So bouncing back and forward between the two actually increases my knowledge of both of them. Which is why I guess it's a good idea to keep reading Old Testament and New Testament in church too, isn't it? Ah, I'm sure we should. The Bible comes to us as one book in two testaments. Yes, there are 66 different books, but one book in two testaments. And... The Old Testament and the New Testament is a critical difference. It's a funny problem because there's a continuity between the two, but there's also a discontinuity between the two. And Jeremiah, the prophet in chapter 31, promised the coming of a New Testament. And with the coming of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the New Testament, the New covenant the word testament is just the latin word for covenant the new contract between god and man that was always planned but has now come to fulfillment and so in reading our bibles we're reading about what is continuous throughout the bible but what is also come as some discontinuity now that jesus has arrived so you're saying given that we need to keep reading our old and new testament continually back and forward Let's model as we gather as God's people, as we gather in church. Let's model that kind of reading constantly by reading old, reading new, and seeing that as the central activity of what we're doing together, to read together and to sit obediently under what the Word says. Yes, to just have your church where you only read one testament all the time. or one te You're not modelling and you're not reading the Bible the way it's written to be read. So we do need to read every time, both Old and New Testament. Well, there's a challenge and an encouragement for your churches. Philip, thanks for talking about reading and reading the Bible in particular and what this seemingly simple and yet the more we dig into it, the richer kind of concept it is. 
to read and understand what God's Word is saying. Thanks for taking us through that. Um, we should pray, as we always do, that we'd understand God's Word and we'd, that we'd be those humble, contrite of spirit people who tremble before the Word and long to read it and understand it. So perhaps you'd finish by praying for us. Okay. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have spoken to us. We thank you by your Spirit. You have given us hearts and minds to want to hear what you have to say. So move in us, Father, that we may read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word, that by the hearing of your word we may indeed come to salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.